You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Today's show is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, D'Souza, Casey, Felony Melanie, Big Beard, Willie P, Schmarls, Proctor, Rin Ketzel, Long Knives Logan, G.D. Fraser, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Eli the Cartographer, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. For the past few episodes, we've been pretty laser-focused on the events surrounding Henry Avery's 1695 capture of the Ganji Sawai. That's the Mughal ship, a Ganja Dao, that carried the greatest accumulation of wealth of possibly any ship sailing at the time. Now, though, in the aftermath, Thomas too is dead. So are a bunch of other pirates and a bunch of their victims. All of their ships are damaged, and those few pirates that had managed to survive divvied up all of their spoils and went their separate ways. We're going to catch up with them soon enough, but for now, the world has no idea where any of these pirates are. So we're going to shift focus. We're going to talk about what has been happening in the world while Henry Avery and Thomas II and all the rest were on their mission to the Indian Ocean. And we're going to focus primarily on three different ports on the Atlantic. We'll begin in Boston. This is episode 224, While We Were Away. Sir William Phipps, the governor of Massachusetts, was that first American-born subject of the English crown ever to earn a knighthood. He earned that knighthood largely due to the reclamation of a Spanish treasure ship, which funded the Bank of England, and also inadvertently funded the Spanish expedition and thus Henry Avery's voyage to the Indian Ocean, but that... Governorship was granted to him largely for the same reason, his service to the crown. 
Immediately upon taking up his post as governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, his administration was inundated with the controversy surrounding the witch trials in Salem. They were a distraction that the governor did not need and could not afford. He had other concerns, so he delegated those trials out mostly to Increase Mather and his son Cotton Mather. They were Puritans. They believed that the devil took an active, day-to-day role in human beings' lives, and it's not clear that William Phipps did. He was a pragmatic man, and right now he had worldly concerns to deal with, namely the war against France. That was his job in America, his main job, to prosecute the war to the best of his abilities. King William's War, as the Nine Years' War was known in the colonies, was not going terribly well for William Phipps. His strategy was primarily naval in nature, and he did have forts along the frontier and raised militia whenever needed for a land force, but... In order to win, he granted out letters of mark to privateers who were to attack French ports mostly in Canada. Which is a fine strategy, but it doesn't work out too well if you lose the Battle of Quebec and all of your privateers turn to piracy. And that's exactly what happened. Meanwhile, raiding parties from the Wabanaki Confederation, usually armed and often led by French troops, were raiding Maine and Massachusetts and New Hampshire with almost impunity. English settlements and border towns were wiped out every campaign season, sometimes a bunch of them. Every man and boy in town was killed, every woman and girl was carried off. It was a bad look for the governor. All the while, more and more problems continued to pile up on his plate, most notably the witch trials, which eventually he did get a handle on. Once they were put to bed, William Phipps held a formal dinner at his home, and there he read a letter that he'd recently received from Queen Mary herself, a letter that congratulated him on the conclusion of the trials and hoped that they were, in fact, done with once and for all. That's really how the royal household was doing business here in this brave new world of parliamentary monarchy. The crowns did not exert absolute authority. When they did want to personally weigh in on an issue, they sent polite letters letting their representatives know exactly how they feel and what they were expected to do. This was the queen saying, good job, it's all over, don't you dare let it start again. But of course all of that only really applied to civil matters. When some of the rustics start, for example, hunting witches, when it came to matters of war and peace, the king still held absolute authority, and he was exerting that authority in the colonies thanks to the war. And that was causing problems for Governor Phipps, problems that would look pretty familiar to the American colonies on the eve of the Revolution. There was the billeting of soldiers in private residences, which was leading to abuse and sexual assault and the depreciation of winter food stores. People were starving to death, thanks to it. There's a reason we put that in the Constitution. But mostly it was taxes. The tribute owed to the Crown through the Navigation Acts. 
Phipps was accused of skimming off the top and gumming up the works and all manner of different ways of not sending the proper taxes on to England. And he wasn't. Now, whether this was his own personal corruption or some kind of righteous civil disobedience or maybe a combination of the two is hard to say. But he was recalled to London to answer for these discrepancies. As his last act as governor, he did finally put a lid on the witch trials by issuing formal pardons for every person that had been accused. This meant that, legally, they could never be brought up on witchcraft charges again, and that they would cease to suffer the ill effects of having been accused, legally speaking at least. But in November 1694, William Phipps set sail for England. Upon his arrival, he was imprisoned, and some pretty wild charges were levied against him. But William Phipps was never going to stand trial. In his dank, dark, cold cell, William Phipps caught a fever. And he was released on bail, but by that point it was too late. William Phipps died on 18 February 1695. Now, just so everyone knows exactly where we are on the timeline, Henry Avery is, at just about this time, rounding the Cape of Good Hope. The death of William Phipps, well, first of all, it probably was a natural death. I haven't seen any mention of, you know, poison or assassination, but it did work out pretty well for the king. Rather than wasting time and money on some kind of lengthy court process, he was able to immediately appoint a new and more proper governor for Massachusetts. The new governor's name was Sir Richard Coote, 1st Earl of Bellamont. And from here on out, I'm going to be referring to him as either Bellamont or the Earl of Bellamont, Otherwise, I'm going to wind up calling him Old Dick Coote every time I mention him. So, Bellamont was a powerful ally to King William and Queen Mary. He was among the first military or political leaders in England to turn against King James II. Bellamont served, alongside John Churchill and a number of others, in the army of the Netherlands that would eventually help William of Orange claim the English throne. And Bellamont had a bit of a, an interest in the American colonies. Now, not a personal or really even a financial interest like so many others, but he had a legal interest. He'd been, for some time now, leading the prosecution against the leadership in Leisler's Rebellion back in New York. He was an outspoken critic of William Phipps, especially in regard to the witch trials. In the Parliament and the courts, he'd been campaigning for this job for some time. And with his military experience and proven loyalty to the crown, he really was the obvious choice to take over the governorship of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, a governorship that gave him dominion over... Massachusetts, obviously, but also Maine and New Hampshire, which includes modern-day Vermont. New Hampshire was in this kind of weird political limbo at the time. It was technically an independent province, but it was still tied to Massachusetts. And thanks to the war, Bellamont saw it under his control as well. 
Now, he took over the governorship immediately, but he wouldn't actually arrive in America for a couple of years yet. There was a lot of work to do before he could set sail. Meanwhile, the main consideration on everybody's mind was the war. The war of the League of Osberg was going pretty badly for basically everybody. The campaign season of 1694 had seen the war grow bitter. It was brutal. It was hard fought on all sides. Much of the, you know, gallant pageantry that we so often associate with early modern warfare was pretty much stripped away by the time the campaign of 1695 rolled around. Lots of starvation, lots of massacres, lots of atrocities. It was a bad time to be caught in the crossfire. I mean, imagine that you were a farmer living in the, uh, the Rhineland. You know, your lands had been traded back and forth and back and forth for six years now. Every time you plant new crops, they get trampled. Your homes are violated by French dragoons or Dutch cavalry. They take your food, they take your wine, they take your wives and daughters, and when they're done, they take your sons to fight their wars. Anybody who was still living in the region lived in constant fear. We're not going to talk about the back-and-forths of the war, but everybody was unhappy with their tactical and strategic positions in the campaign of 1695. France, though, had it the worst. By 1695, France was basically broke. Their treasuries were empty. They were almost under a complete blockade. You know, a, a national siege. They had enemies on all sides, and... All of their coastline to the west and north was controlled by the Dutch and English. Their only naval outlet was on the Mediterranean, but even then the straits out to the Atlantic were controlled by Spain. The only real solution France saw was to outfit privateers. Now, we've met a number of those privateers, although not by name, that were picked up by Henry Avery and his compatriots in the Indian Ocean. France was handing out commissions to anybody who could get their hands on one, who had a ship with even a couple of guns, they got a privateering commission and were welcome to attack any of the enemies they wanted to. Now, the most famous of these French privateers was a man named Jean Bart, and we are going to have to talk about Jean Bart at some point in the future, but that's still to come. He was... By the end of the war, he was a French naval hero. And really the only reason that in this campaign season, France won any victories of any kind. They were losing territory on land and at sea, well... First of all, the Caribbean, for the French, was a mess. They suffered a pretty terrible defeat on Saint-Domingue, the epicenter of French power in the West Indies. It was a defeat we've talked about before. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. 
That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. That's the day on which the English attacked the French city at Cap Francais, on the northern coast of Saint-Domingue. The home of a bunch of French settlers, but most notably, Lauro de Graff and his wife, Anne du This is the day that Lauro de Graff disappears. And it's also the day that Anne du enters the world of pirate myth the day that she's supposed to have picked up her husband's sword and led his men in battle, which may have happened. But even if it did, it didn't end well. They were almost certainly defeated, and if she managed to get away, she did not live out her days as a pirate queen. She would have lived under an alias, maybe alongside her husband on the run. If she did not escape... More likely she would have lived out the rest of her short life in an ignominious stint in a Jamaican jail cell. The English in the West Indies actually were doing pretty well during the campaign of 1694. Aside from the attack at Cap Francais, they also enjoyed a string of victories in the Lesser Antilles. Victories that a lot of people took part in, but... In large part, they were thanks to an independent naval contractor out of New York named Captain William Kidd. Now, we've talked about William Kidd's time in New York, how he arrived during Leisler's rebellion and helped to turn the tide. That action helped him to be welcomed into Governor Fletcher's inner circle and into New York society. We've talked about how he married the very wealthy, twice-widowed heiress Sarah Bradley Cox Ort, thus marrying into three New York fortunes. A marriage that for a few years enjoyed some marital bliss, and they had a couple of daughters. William Kidd rose up through the ranks of New York society very quickly. He became a magistrate, 
You know, black robe, powdered wig, portraits painted and hung in his office. But his true passion, or really, the front on which he could hope to advance the fastest and farthest, was the sea. With his wife's fortune, fortunes, and the governor's aid, William Kidd outfitted a frigate, the Antigua. He obtained a commission from the governor and went out privateering. Now this was legitimate, legal, wartime privateering against the French. And he won some victories along the Newfoundland coast, but that really wasn't paying out as he had hoped. Instead, Kidd outfitted a voyage to the West Indies, he'd been there before, you'll remember, and took part in a number of pretty high-profile raids, most notably against St. Christopher's Island. Today we call it St. Kitts. These successes earned William Kidd a lot of clout in New York. He came home a returning hero. He was a personal friend of the governor and a husband to the richest and most influential woman in town. Plus, he brought back chests full of silver, which Governor Fletcher and his wife Sarah appreciated immensely. It was a nice return on their investment. William Kidd then found himself rich and influential and married to a beautiful woman with two beautiful baby girls. And he had a really nice house in some prime Manhattan real estate. He used some of that silver to help fund the construction of the Trinity Church in New York, alongside other luminaries like Benjamin Fletcher and Frederick Phillips. He purchased a personal family pew in the church. They were throwing lavish parties for all of the best people in town and all of the best people visiting town. He was living the high life. What more could a guy ask for? Well, William Kidd wanted a job, but not just any job. He had plenty of money. William Kidd wanted a job with prestige. He wanted to be a captain in the Royal Navy. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not going to mince any words. This was insane. 100% cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs lunacy. And there are so, so many reasons it was insane. First of all, and this is a big one, William Kidd had never served a day in the Royal Navy. He was also Scottish, which isn't exactly a bar to serving in the Royal Navy, but it was a hurdle. Now, his father had been a captain, but not in the Navy, just of a private ship, so no letter of recommendation there, plus his father was dead. Then there's the fact that William Kidd was an American, born in Scotland, but lived much of his life in America. Again, not exactly a bar, but an even bigger hurdle. And then, of course, as I would remind you, he'd never served a day in the Royal Navy. The maritime experience that he did have, and to be fair, it was extensive, but it was all aboard private naval contractors of varying degrees of legitimacy and legality. Most of his career was spent skirting the line of piracy and a few times stepping right over it. You know, all's fair in love and war, and they were at war, and he was attacking the right people, so nobody was complaining. But the Navy? A captain in the Royal Navy? 
William Kidd, as far as I can tell, didn't even know anyone in the Navy. Now, on his voyages to the West Indies, he had sailed alongside a couple of Navy ships, but, you know, it's not like he was buddy-buddy with the captains there. A captaincy in the Royal Navy of England was among the most illustrious jobs in the world. There were men with knighthoods and titles, and vast estates and friends at court, and a lot more money than William Kidd, and they were all struggling to get a job like that. They were spending years working their way up the ranks. You know, unless you were a member of the royal family, you kind of had to go through a series of different jobs. Midshipman, master's mate, lieutenant, first mate, basically all the jobs that Henry Every had had before turning pirate. That's the career path to make captain. Buying a ship and privateering for a few years, even if you're pretty good at it, well, that's not going to cut it. But this wasn't what William Kidd wanted to hear. He decided he was going to go for it. He asked around town there in New York and managed to secure a letter of recommendation from a one James Graham, the Attorney General of New York. I was going to read this letter from James Graham to William Blaithwaite, the Secretary of War, in full, but it's really not necessary. It doesn't give us any information that we really don't know. It talks William Kidd up. It's a nice letter of recommendation, all of his illustrious victories, his influential friends. But there's a sense in it that even James Graham knows that William Kidd's got no chance. He's almost apologetic to the secretary. Towards the end, it turns into, you know, look, I'm sorry for wasting your time, but this guy's really worth a look, so why not throw him a bone? Graham knew he had no chance at a captaincy, but William Kidd wasn't going to take no for an answer. In June 1695, William Kidd set sail for London on board the Antigua with a full complement of his own crewmen alongside his brother-in-law, another powerful New York man named Samuel Bradley. That's Sarah Bradley Cox Ort Kidd's brother. Samuel Bradley and William Kidd were close. They were godparents to each other's children. They were executors to each other's estates in both of their wills, and they even co-signed on all of their big purchases like land and ships. Now, they might have done all that anyway. They did appear to actually be friends, but... This was all really the doing of Sarah Bradley Cox Ort Kidd. All the money was hers. All the property was hers. William Kidd was living in her house. You know, he'd earned some silver on his privateering raid, but she was running the show and made sure that all of her bases were covered. William Kidd's time in London was... It was an odyssey. He had a heck of a time even getting his foot in the door to see anyone that might be able to talk to somebody who knew the secretary's secretary. For now, since we've been zigzagging across the Atlantic from Boston to London to New York to London, let's take a quick trip over to Amsterdam. William III was spending his summer in his hometown, but not for a vacation. He was there for the war, for the campaign season of 1695, alongside his Secretary of War, William Blaithwaite. And it was here shortly after William Kidd arrived in London that the tide finally began to turn in favor of the Allies. 
The League of Augsburg between England, the Netherlands, and the Holy Roman Empire had been more or less on the defensive since the beginning of the war. They'd had several severe naval setbacks, which we've talked about. But at the beginning of September 1695, they broke through. Literally, after a fashion. There was a fortress city in the Rhineland that had been a stronghold of the French for years now. However, through the winter of 1694 to 1695, and up until September 1695, it had been under siege. A lot of people died, both the besieged and the besiegers. It was one of the more brutal battlefields in this bitter war. But on the 5th of September, the city capitulated. Strategically speaking, it was a very important victory for the Allies. Now they had a crossing point over the Rhine. They were able to move troops and munitions and supplies and messages. This should have been the moment to break out the bubbly, and for a few days it was. But of course, we all know what else happened in the world at the beginning of September 1695. Next time... William III meets William Kidd. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brilliant. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight